I mean, to me, imposter syndrome is kind of that feeling that you're a fraud. It's that feeling that, that somehow you got where you got based upon either luck or chance or the fact that you've kind of been able to fool people all this time. So welcome back to another episode of the Veterinary Career Success Show. Super excited to have on with us today, Dr. Laurie Kogan. You have got quite an awesome background, and I am very excited to have this conversation about one of the sort of hot topics, buzz topics, uh, things that affect us as a profession. The subject in this episode is imposter syndrome. So, Laurie, welcome to the show. Um, Perhaps we'll start by you authored a paper called Veterinarians and Imposter Syndrome, an Exploratory Study. I wonder if you can just give us a little background to you, first of all, some of your work, how you ended up there, because you, you're doing a lot of really interesting work in just the whole psychology of pets and their interaction with humans. And then this next little piece of work you've done here is then an extension of you know really how humans interact with veterinary medicine a little bit. So it feels like a little bit of an offshoot from some of the stuff that I've read about your work before. But perhaps give us a sort of potted, potted history of you and your work and how we ended up having a conversation about this study you published. Sure, Dave. And first, thanks so much for, for having me today. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this topic because it, it really does impact so many people and especially people within veterinary medicine. So as far as just a, a little bit of background about me and, and why I wanted to study this is I'm a psychologist by training. And really all of my research and my interest revolves around human-animal interaction in some capacity. And, and so that also includes how best to support veterinary professionals. And so while I'm really intrigued by all the different aspects of the relationship between people and animals, I'm also really driven to kind of support those that really care for animals. And so it didn't feel too far off for me to do a study looking at imposter syndrome because I I talk with veterinarians all the time who do have imposter syndrome. So some of them recognize it as such, and then a lot of them don't. But that's what really drove me to do this study. I love it. I have a sort of sidebar question, and at the risk of turning this into more of a blunt dissection style interview from my other podcast, where did that sort of affection for the animals and the profession come from in the first instance? Oh, sure. I knew a long, long time ago that I really was driven towards kind of making the, the world a better place for people and animals. And, and like everybody else, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should be a veterinarian, you know, and kind of looked into that a little bit and, and thought that it really wasn't for me to see sick animals all the time. And because I've always kind of had a psychological lens towards everything, it was really a natural fit because I feel like humans are the ones that make the decisions about animals in everything, you know? And so if we want to look at improving the lives and welfare of animals, better understanding why people make the decisions that they do about animals can kind of be one avenue towards that improvement, you know? So, so everything from looking at why do people take their animals to the veterinarian? Why do they get pet health insurance? You know, and then that kind of led to things like how do we support these people that go into this field? You know, so 
there tend to be some kind of generalizations around folks that are interested in veterinary medicine. And, and there's some incredible strengths that come with that population, their passion and their intellect and their drive and, and all of those things. But then those are some of the very same things that kind of sometimes get them in trouble and, and lead to, you know, kind of that need for a little bit extra support or counseling. Okay, so that sounds like a really nice way to sort of enter the subject then. Imposter syndrome, the more I read and learn about it, at the risk of getting a bit done in Kruger on this, the more I sort of start to realize there's just, it feels like there's a lot of nuance. And it also feels like a bucket into which many things are thrown and described in many, many circumstances and situations. So I'm really interested to hear from the perspective of a psychologist I am a professional in this rather than just, you know, me with my big goblin opinion. So what is it? And I'd love to start there and then talk about its prevalence in vets and how it kind of affects us. Sure. I mean, to me, imposter syndrome is kind of that feeling that you're a fraud. It's that feeling that that somehow you got where you got based upon either luck or chance or the fact that you've kind of been able to fool people all this time. You know, for example, I I work with a lot of veterinary interns who will tell me, gosh, maybe this was a mistake that I got this internship. (laughs) You know, maybe, maybe they like didn't read through my whole entire application or, um, (laughs) and it was the same thing, you know, when I worked with veterinary students that say, because of course getting into vet school is so competitive. They say, well, I have no idea how this happened. Well, it happened because of all the hard work that you've done. It happened because of who you are. So it's that feeling, that fear that people have of this discrepancy between kind of how other people might see them and then how they see themselves. And the thought that, gosh, people are going to see through the disguise, the veneer, and see that that really I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> First of all, it sounds like you're describing my entire life so far. So. <laughs> constantly waiting to get found out at some point but I wonder how does this does this show up differently in different stages of of our lives and where does it start like where where are the seeds sown for this this feels like an important question for us to get to grips with when you're weeding a garden you don't just cut off the top of the weed and expect everything to be fine you've got to pull it out by the roots and sometimes the roots are where the the growth begins where are the seeds sown for this sense of not being enough almost and and I said I find myself I don't want to put words in your mouth or use phrases I might use I want to keep it straight from your perspective Mm -hmm. so where does it all start yeah I mean I think it's a great question Dave and I think a couple things I mean I'd like to start with a caveat that I usually talk with people about the fact that insight in how we got to where we are now is great and it satisfies that curiosity Insight by itself, I think, is not very useful. And I'm going back and saying, well, gosh, it's because, you know, it's because of how my parents talked to me when I was three, which, by the way, you know, all parents do the very best that they can. Right. As a parent, the I know limited knowledge and guidance that they have. Right. But so I think it, it can satisfy that curiosity, like I said, but it's really a matter of addressing how do we work with what we have right now? How do we move forward from this point? But to answer your question, I think that one of the things that we tend to do 
with children or, or even with adults is that we talk about these accomplishments, like we tend to praise accomplishments or achieving goals. And I think maybe sometimes a better thing to really focus on is the effort that went into it. You know, that to say it's so fantastic that you worked really hard at this because because that's the piece of stuff that we can control. So if I'm like, if I'm trying to study for a test and I, how hard I study and my study regime, those are things that I can control. And those are things that I can be proud of how I ultimately do on the test. There's a fair amount of, of that that's beyond my control. And so then when somebody praises me and say, oh my gosh, that's so fantastic that you got an A on that test. There's a piece of that that I know that that part was within my control and part was not. And so then there's that little piece of my brain that says, yeah, but that test was a little bit easier than I thought it would be. Or, you know, as opposed to there's no denying that, yep, you know what, I really did make it, you know, a conscious effort and a top priority to study for the past two weeks that I can wrap my head around and be proud of. So differentiating between praising effort and kind of the means to an end rather than praising the end. I'm reminded of um, that is Carol Dweck's work that's coming in the mindset work that she did. That, exactly. That, yeah. Okay. And I love what you said about moving. There's something quite disempowering about when you look back and blame somebody else for how you are versus something much more future focused and empowering about then going, well, how do I work with it? And so there's one little quote here. So doing a bit of reading and research around this, and it's an article on Harvard Business Review called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. Feels like a really relevant thing given the gender balance of veterinary medicine by Richika Tulshian and Julianne Burry. And in the article, I'm just going to quote from this, says the concept, meaning the concept of imposter syndrome, whose development in the 70s excluded the effects of systemic racism, classism, xenophobia, and other biases, took a fairly universal feeling of discomfort and second guessing and mild anxiety in the workplace, and then pathologized it, especially for women. It's one of the nagging doubts that I've had or questions, maybe questions is a better word. In a, in a previous podcast, I somewhat mischievously and, and quite intentionally and very provocatively said, I don't believe it exists, which isn't totally true. But I had a question over how much of this is a, a bucket we've created to weaponize a normal feeling when you're learning. So I would, I would love to hear you shoot that to pieces and burn me down. But also, I'm really curious about how this affects people at different stages in their career. Because, you know, the reason I can confidently say I'm, I'm sort of teasing and being provocative is because I've, I absolutely have felt like an imposter pretty much every day of my career. And, and everything you've described earlier is exactly, you know, it's not a joke. That is exactly how I've felt numerous, numerous occasions through my career. But it's not stopped me. I've never, I've never classed it as a syndrome. I've never thought of it as a syndrome. It's just a feeling. And to me, I, framed that as a feeling like, okay, I, it's probably feedback that actually I'm not good enough if I'm being completely honest of what I'm doing. And I used that as motivation to get better and Im improve myself. And, and actually, the fact, it was a very positive thing. Where does it, yeah, I just, I mean, number one, 
rip that apart, please, and set records straight here. But perhaps can you speak to some of the nuance around this? Like a young vet experiencing the feeling of them not being belonging or being good enough feels like something quite different to say somebody who's been in the profession for 30 years or 20 years and is actually really high achieving, but still feeling that and still convinced that they're not enough. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between the two? Are we in danger of sort of bucket listing this or, or you know, grouping a lot of different feelings and putting them in a bucket? And how does the title affect the way we interact it? Mm-hmm. Well, those are a lot of questions. Sorry. <laughs> um, let, me, let me think about that. So, so are we pathologizing something that perhaps shouldn't be? So it was one of your questions. And right. I don't really look at it that way. I think sometimes it can be helpful to give something a name. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things about imposter syndrome is that kind of almost by definition, you don't talk to other people about it. Because if you're scared of being caught as a fraud, you're not sharing that information. And so... So you have this feeling and you don't tell anybody about it and you have no idea that, well, gosh, you know, up to 70 percent of people have that very same feeling. And so I think that it can be helpful to label something and say, this is kind of this bucket of, you know, to use your term, this bucket of feelings that I have. And somebody says, oh, yeah, you know what? That's imposter syndrome. And a lot of people have that very, very same feeling. So. I actually think in that way, it can kind of be empowering because first of all, it gives us kind of a common platform to talk about it. Now, making the assumption that that stymies people's personal growth is something totally different, too. So I think that those are kind of some of those nuances that you talked about. So for some people, they're able to use this feeling to kind of drive forward and to try harder and then for some people, it does get in the way, you know, so, so if I, oh, for example, you know, I talk to interns about this all the time, veterinary interns is that, you know, if you're so afraid of being perceived or caught as a fraud, then you probably are not speaking up as much in rounds as somebody that doesn't have that feeling. But of course, other people don't go around giving you the benefit of the doubt and saying, you know what, well, you know, Betty doesn't talk up in rounds because because she's feeling insecure. They think, well, she doesn't know or she doesn't care or she's apathetic. And so I think in that way, it can often get in the way. And that's that's what I see a fair amount of is that that fear, it prevents people from kind of leaning in to growth opportunities. And instead, they lean back, which then actually, of course, hinders their growth. So I think Yes, you're right in that it's a very common feeling. And I guess I don't view it as, well, gosh, that that makes you psychologically sick. It in some ways means, well, gosh, join the rest of humanity because everybody has that feeling. But another thing to remember, and and I think when you alluded to, you know, newer vets or, or younger vets versus more seasoned, there doesn't tend to be a good correlation between somebody's success and somebody's intellect and somebody's ability and feelings of imposter syndrome, right? Because in in fact, if you really don't have the skills or knowledge and you feel like you don't, that's not imposter syndrome. (laughs) That's an accurate (laughs) reflection of your... That's a reality check, right? (laughs) When you have this discrepancy, 
between all of this feedback from your performance and from other people. And again, I, I relate it to, you know, interns that I talk with. And I say, well, what were your evaluations like? And they say, well, they were all really good. Okay, so tell me the data that supports your premise that you don't know anything, you know? So, so I think in many ways, I think that it can be useful as a tool to kind of help people move forward and recognize how these feelings are kind of limiting them in, in ways that aren't necessarily helpful. I really love that insight. So, you know, if the world is telling you you're doing a good job and your own little the voice in your head is telling you you're going to get found out, you're going to get found out you're not good enough, then a bit of self-awareness there to go, all right, dial that down a bit. Actually, let's listen to the feedback and trust that is probably a very healthy thing. Whereas if the feedback's telling you you're really too dangerous to have that scalpel in your hand that's not imposter syndrome you're just not good enough and you need to practice that and at the very least put the scalpel down for a bit and get exactly. some help <laughs> i love that i love that framing because it actually it's it's nice it's it's a little bit like sort of uh, localizing a spinal lesion or something like that you're looking for the combinations and the patterns which is something my brain gets around and understands a bit more i'm kind of curious you know i, w- I want to speak to the study a bit and I'm curious because you, you had nearly a thousand respondents to this and there were some interesting things but I, what surprised you about the findings from the study and what was more confirmatory? Mm-hmm. I, I guess the confirmatory piece was just how prevalent it is and that I think that there are some elements of veterinary medicine that kind of lend themselves to a higher percentage of people having these types of feelings. I mean, the the field is extremely competitive and you tend to have type A driven people that um, that excel in veterinary school. They're the ones that got in. They're the ones that excel. And then and then those are the type of people that then tend to have imposter syndrome the most. So I guess it makes sense to me. And, and again, based upon all the work that I, I've done with individuals. So it was more confirming and I, I guess wanting to acknowledge it as a profession to say, you know what, if you're having these feelings, guess what? You are not alone. <laughs> Almost everybody that you work with has those feelings too. So, and the fact that more women have those feelings than men. I mean, you're right. One of the things that you said earlier was it did start out as only a something that women have, um, which now we know that that's not true. I mean, there's certainly a lot of men that have feelings of imposter syndrome. I do think it's more prevalent in women. And I think that there's lots of societal reasons for that, right? Um, they weren't born that way. So, you know, to your to your idea about systemic issues in our society that kind of foster some of these feelings that's a whole nother path we could go down <laughs> i'm totally i'm game, I'm game. <laughs> let's i mean please touch on them even at a top level i would be interested to hear your thoughts on that but if for no other reason than just very selfishly of, of a father of a eight-year-old girl you know like it'd be nice to see what landmines i should not be stepping on <laughs> Well, I, I think I, there's a lot of challenges. You know, I, I was just reading something recently about, I can't remember what country it was, but the idea that on social media that people would have to make note of if they altered their pictures, for example, you know, because it, 
because even though we know that we know intellectually that when we look at pictures on social media that many of those are, are altered girls still do comparisons all the time right mm-hmm. you know and so and so there's there's lots of factors within our environment that kind of foster feelings of insecurity and i think social media certainly plays into that you know the idea that everybody's life looks so glamorous and fantastic and you know and so again kind of going back to imposter syndrome where then you feel like well gosh it's just me all by myself that has this feeling and everybody else like their life is like awesome <laughs> so it's just me that takes four hours to do that dental and and, and can't do a spare exactly. can't use a spare hoop for love nor money it's like nope no. everyone's speedily rocking by the end of the day at that stage in your career well exactly you know so so to me that was really the the most important point that I wanted to get across in this paper is just that that you're not alone and you're not even you're not abnormal <laughs> I really like this. And I, I wondered if you might, I mean, it's, it's a newish term. And one of the interesting things that came out of a, a previous podcast was just the notion of, we didn't really have this as a term, although reading around it, the concept existed in the 70s, so it, or was developed mm-hmm. in the 70s. It wasn't used. I mean, it wasn't a term that, that, that it's, it's entered the lexicon along with compassion fatigue, burnout, imposter syndrome. They're the big three terms. I mean, obviously, suicide was the word that was around the host when I was a younger vet but now you you have other words that or other phrases or concepts that we're using a lot is that a function of us just being more open about talking about mental health I, I'm just curious why we didn't used to, to use these terms or did we have different terms for it or did we frame it differently do you have a perspective on that yeah I do think that we are more open to talking about mental health which I am just elated about, you know, because again, when everybody keeps this stuff inside, then they feel like that they're the only ones, you know, as we talk about, oh my gosh, I feel really anxious when I'm going into an ER shift, or yeah, I feel like I'm a fraud, or, you know, I mean, and then you can get that support from other people and recognize that, yeah, like other, your colleagues are having those exact same feelings. And so, I think it's fantastic that veterinary medicine is beginning to kind of be a little bit more open about the fact that that a lot of people are really struggling because then it makes it more acceptable to get the help that they need. I agree. So I wonder if we can move on to, uh, I'm, I'm just mentally taking notes on, you know, processes and things here to try and help people who are listening. And so if I'm hearing you right, and please correct me, wherever you feel is necessary, which could be a lot. There's my imposter syndrome kicking in. So the first step is always self-awareness, right? Like be aware of the chatter that's happening in your mind about things. And if you're feeling this way, the second thing, it seems like a very logical next step is to gather some feedback and some evidence from the world around you as to whether that voice is accurate or not. So what confirmatory or non-confirmatory information can you gather to give you a sense of whether or not you are justifiably thinking that you're not quite good enough if the answer is you're not then obviously make a plan talk to a mentor get support work on it you'll get there but if the problem is inside of your mind it's a sort of intrinsic thing about the thought the way you're thinking about yourself 
what is the sequence of things or the steps or things like how do we as professionals manage this i think this is the question that many of us would just love to be able to understand a bit more about and have some tools to work with sure I think you did a great job of saying, yeah, that you want to first just kind of look at this feeling, recognize that you're having it, and then try to objectively look for data that supports that. I often joke with people that like, I mean, these are really intelligent scientific people, (laughs) yet this area, they're not scientific or objective at all, right? And so I say, well, that that doesn't work. (laughs) I, I want you to use that rational part of your brain here too. So, so being able to hopefully kind of look at some of the objective data and then recognize, okay, well, I'm having this feeling that doesn't seem based on reality. And, and I think instead of trying to make that feeling go away, which I think many people would attest is ex- extremely difficult, if not impossible, I would say that we just acknowledge it. And and that there's a couple different ways that you can do that. First is that I would suggest that you give that story in your head a name, you know, so it might be for me, it might be the Lori's not good enough story, or, you know, that I'm not good enough, or I'm a failure, or, but, but something that resonates with you as that's the story. And then I suggest that people recognize and say to themselves, I notice that I'm thinking about the Lori is a failure story. And there's something about that piece of saying, I notice that I'm having these thoughts about that is a nice distancing effect. It's a lot different to say, I'm thinking about what a failure I am. That's a very different, it brings a different feeling to me than to say, I notice that I'm having the thoughts about the story. That switching the camera angle. Right. And so that perspective, that distance kind of gives you like a little bit of breathing room. And then I also suggest to people that, okay, so you, so you've seen it, you've noticed, you've labeled it, and now you're going to move on. And so move on mentally, you know, and the, and the easiest way to do that is to recognize that, well, if I'm thinking about this stuff, I am definitely not in the present moment <laughs> because there's you can't be doing both at the same time. And and so there's a couple different techniques that you can, you know, people can try to get back to the present moment. And one of the simplest ways is to use any of your sense modalities to say, okay, what is going on right here? So the example that I tend to give people is that if you were to right now focus on the toes, your toes and your shoes, and you crinkle up your toes in your shoes. I'm doing it right now. I can feel them. I can feel the toes on the floor and I can feel the toes on the top of my shoes. I guarantee you that I'm not thinking about anything else. Like I'm only, I can only think about that. Like, right because we cannot think about two things at the same time. Now, now my brain might flip back and want to go back to that story, but it can't do both. And so it, it gives you like a little bit of a distancing thing. You know, the other thing that you can do is use your brain to think about things that take some concentration. And so whether that be anything from going through a list of dog breeds to counting backwards from 107s, 
something that takes my concentration like that also means I can't be thinking about my story. Yeah. And so what in essence that you're doing is, is and, and it takes more than one time. I mean, you, you'd have to practice this. But what you start to do is you start to retrain your brain to say, OK, you know what? I'm not going to dwell in that place. I'm going to recognize it. I'm not going to put energy into making those feelings go away. Instead, I'm just going to say, OK, yeah, I see you, but I'm going to refocus over here. And beyond that, are there steps beyond to then create some form of different narrative? So that feels like blocking the narrative or distracting away. How does one then change the course of the river? If this, you know, this waterway has carved out a bit of a riverbed, you know, is there a next step where you have to then, do you create some other story that is much more supportive and positive? Is that something that can help people? Mm-hmm. Well, another thing that I suggest to people is that, is that they write down two or three things that went well during the day. And so, you know, especially, and, it, and you can do this at home too, but especially work-related things, you know, so it could be positive experiences or, you know, interactions with a client. It could be some case that went well. It could be like something that you noticed on a test that other people, you know, diagnostic tests that other people didn't notice. But I really encourage people to take a minute and write down two or three things that they did well that day or that went well that day. And and just kind of keep those somewhere. Because what I really notice is that it is super easy for us to remember the negative things, right? So that one client that was like really, you know, really not pleasant. <laughs> we remember that person for a really long time. But but the three clients that we had yesterday that were actually really quite delightful, yeah, we don't remember them. And so when we write them down, then we remember that. And I'm all about the idea that what we focus on in our life grows. So if we focus on the positive things and we focus on what we do well, then we get more of that. And that's where we want to put our energy. So that's kind of another way of saying, okay, we're not going to directly combat these feelings of imposter syndrome, but instead we're going to start to work to replace that with focusing on on things that we do well. Got it. Now, a last word then, you know, we've got two generations of it, and not two generations, but two cohorts of vets graduating you know, this year, grad class of 21, and 20 was very disrupted right at the tail end as well, particularly moving into a job market, perhaps. Would you expect to see or have this effect being worse for these cohorts and as, as leaders, as people in the profession, and if you are in that? In those cohorts, is there any advice or are there any words that you could offer the people in practice who are employers or leading these people, and then also the vets themselves coming into the profession who've gone through what was just been incredibly difficult last year of education? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the first things I think is that is that it's quite nuanced. You know, when I talk with people from different vet schools and and different parts of the country what their veterinary experience, what their clinical experience looked like was so different based upon what school and and what COVID looked like in their community. And and so I think that we need to be really sensitive to that. And so I feel like that some people are coming out and going into practice or internships with a minimal amount of like direct communication with clients, for example. 
and that my hope is is that employers or intern directors are sensitive to that you know that that they take the time and i think that they are and I, to understand okay are, are there deficits in this person you know based upon experiences that they didn't get to have that we need to perhaps back up a little bit and do a little bit of fill in of things that they didn't get and then there i think I also am hoping that a lot of the folks that are coming out really appreciate the incredible resilience that they have shown and the strength that they have shown to get through what the experiences that they went through and the idea that I am going to totally rock this new job or this internship because I know I'm capable of anything, you know, and, and that's what I see a lot of is, you know, people that were, really isolated or, you know, people that were in quarantine and people that had these really kind of just such a stressful year. For many of us, it's looking a lot better now. <laughs> and that to know that, yeah, you made it through that and we're starting to come out on the other side and that's super exciting. What a great uplifting message to round out our conversation. Dr. Kogan, thank you so much for your time and your insights that you've shared with us today. I really, really appreciate that. And I appreciate you doing that work and shining a little light and helping to expand the debate and the conversation with not just the paper, but also your really valuable insights into how we can work with this, this feeling, this syndrome. So thank you very much. And thank you for being a guest in the podcast. Absolutely, David. It was my pleasure.